Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Our look at Darwin Cook. And uh, quick introductions. Uh, my name is Robert Haynes. I'm with the Joe Schuster Awards. And um, someone that uh, you know, we got to know Darwin a bit because he's, he's won a few awards. We're very lucky in Canada to have uh, a talent like this. Um, and, and yeah, Darwin's won four. Uh, cartoonist twice, writer, and artist. Uh, also won a couple of Eisners for uh, Solo and New Frontier. And um, we're gonna be, we talked earlier today, you're free form. It really likes free form. It's going to be a lot of Q&A. So think of your questions, and, and we're going to roll. But um, what I'd like to start with is just the fact that uh, The Hunter was dropped. Um, fantastic book. Um, it's a project you've been working on for quite a while. I, I suppose it was 2000 when I first seriously considered trying to uh, secure the rights to adapt the book. And there were a couple false starts. But uh, yeah, finally uh, got it together uh, about a year ago. And uh, yeah, it's been doing well, I guess. I've sold so that out. <laughs> I'm printing more of them. So uh, that's great. That means I can do the other ones in the series. <laughs> and it was planned as uh, originally, I think you were thinking four? That's right. Uh, from the start, we, we had planned to do four books in, in this series. And like anything like that, though, it's all dependent on how the first one gets received. And my overlords at IDW are happy, I think, so <laughs> we're going to go ahead with the, with the other books. So that's a relief to me. Yeah, well, um, it was Richard Stark uh, recently passed away. Yes, he did. This is, uh, you, you um, got to know him, or you, got to, you, you, you contacted him, and he clearly approved the project. Not at first. Really? Uh, yeah, uh, I almost blew it at first. Uh, the book The Hunter was written by a man named Donald Westlake, uh, who was such a prolific writer that he adopted pen names to accommodate all the books he was capable of writing, because it, it was considered bad form back in 1962 for an author to have too many books come out at the same time. So he would just make up new names every time he had a different type of book. So Richard Stark is actually, yeah, uh, the world-famous crime writer Don Westlake, who's uh, he's won a Grandmaster in crime fiction. Uh, he's been Academy Award nominated for the screenplay to the Grifters and written over 100 novels. Um, he's considered probably one of the greatest. He was probably the greatest living crime writer up until uh, last year when, when he did pass away. And when we first contacted uh, Don and and sort of proposed this to him. He was intrigued, but he was kind of skeptical about our ability to, uh, to, to, to translate his work. And I sent my first series of drawings through, and he really didn't like them. Uh, <laughs> he, thought, he thought they were too violent, and he thought the character, as I perceived him, was too much of a, as he said, a hothead. And uh, he tried to explain to us what he thought the character was like, and, and and he didn't seem very hopeful about it. But I sat down the minute I got that news and uh, did a series of paintings that we sent him the next week, and those went a long way. He really he really saw that I had been listening to what he had said and and applied it to what we were doing. <clears throat> and we started an email exchange, which was really great for me to be able to, to, to communicate with this guy. Uh, I just finished doing The Spirit for DC Comics, and I never got the opportunity to talk to Will uh, about the character or what I was doing with it. So it meant a lot to me um, to, to be able to, to go through it with him and make sure that he and I designed the approach for the adaptions together, adaptations. I'm the writer. <laughs> Um, and yeah, it was just, it's so, such a cruel uh, twist of fate. I had literally sent him the first chapter of the book in the mail uh, to arrive in time for Christmas. And uh, he passed away while it was in the mail. So he never actually got to see any of the finished work, um, which was kind of a drag. But, but he was certainly there to guide me and, and set the work up. And uh, that was that meant a lot to 
Yeah, well, I, I'd be very interested to know, um, there's been a number of movies, adaptations of, of his books, and it's always, you know, it's had a different actor. There is even, even um, a woman. That's right. Now, did you, when you're coming up, you know, you, you're now crafting this to, the main character has to have a look. That's right. How did that come about? Did you, did, what was their pitch? Did, For me, uh, I, I've always pictured Parker as Lee Marvin. Uh, there's a film called Point Blank based on the book The Hunter, and uh, Lee Marvin played Parker. Uh, well, in the film, he's called Walker. He wouldn't let the, the film people ever use the name Parker. So I had always pictured Lee Marvin, uh, and that was as far from Parker as Donald Westlake. Uh, you know, it had nothing to do with Parker as far as, as he was concerned. And I remember asking him, well, is there a living person or, or dead person, anybody, that you would say looks like Parker? So I can just... And, and he would tell me for a long time. He said, I don't want to color your opinion. He was a, he was a wonderful guy in that regard. He said, I don't want you to have to, to deal with my preconceptions. But I, I persisted, and I told him that I, I don't think I would be happy doing the book unless we were able to capture what it was he, he felt it should be. And so finally he told me, and I thought this was fascinating. And again, he's a guy who's written over 100 books, probably thousands of characters. He said, every character I've ever written isn't based on anybody. They're just an imaginary person in my head. And I can't imagine that, because I'm always thinking of somebody when, when I'm writing. But he said, every character I've ever written is a complete figment of my imagination, even visually, except for Parker. He said, when I sat and wrote that first chapter, he said, I was picturing Jack Palance, young Jack Palance from like Panic in the Streets. And that really helped me uh, perceive what it was he wanted. And you know, I didn't want to just draw Jack Pellets because that'll take you out of the story. Anybody who knows the actor would be looking at the drawings to see how well I drawn Jack Pellets. Or um, so we 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 opted for a, you know a generic kind of version of that man. And it's it's also it's a double it's a double job because in the second book. Parker gets plastic surgery that completely alters his appearance. So I had to design a character I was willing to throw away um, because he's going to look completely different in the second book. So it, it, it took a little while. Interesting. Now, and you mentioned that uh, he never allowed them to use Parker, but it's right there in, in, in your book. I know the day that he got on board with us and uh, it was the day I had sent him an email explaining to him. Um, he had a lot of questions about what I had planned to do. And uh, he asked me if I was going to update the story. And, and I specifically said, no, I think it has to take place in the year in which you wrote it. Because I want to use all your words. And if we update this story, then we've got to incorporate cell phones, GPS, helicopters. The, the world has changed so radically since the time the book was, was created. I would have had to have rewritten the entire thing to accommodate the way we live now. And I said, I don't want to do that. I want to use your words. I want to use your dialogue and the situations you set up. And I know that was the thing hmm. that made him say, oh, oh, okay, this is Parker. They do want to do Parker. And uh, that, was, that was pretty much it. I think the next day he was, he was in. Interesting. Um, well, then, this this character Parker, he's a, he's a tough guy to like. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's actually he's an easy guy to like, but he's he's a hard guy to keep liking. Um, in 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 a way, he's a lot like Jonah Hex. Uh, you know, he's a the kind of character who you're reading along in the story, and you you know you're being seduced by the guy. You're starting to like him. And you're starting to admire the guy. Thinking you're very cool, and then you get to the chapter in the book where he tortures a woman with kitchen matches for four hours to get a piece of information out of her, and you realize this guy's a monster. Um, so he's a he's a, a really odd character in that he's a reprehensible human being, but he's still completely compelling. Um, 
He certainly has no morality as we understand it, but he has a professional ethic that guides him. And I think it's a real feat for an author to pull this off, to create such an unattractive person, but make him so completely compelling that you want to root for this guy. And in crime fiction, the number one rule is if you're writing a bad guy, you make the people around him even worse. And that's what allows you to treat him like a protagonist. He's bad, but the people he's dealing with are even worse. So it's a matter of, by comparison, he seems like a good guy. Right. It's almost like he has a moral code. He follows it. He knows it. He follows it. I don't even think it's a moral code. Because I don't think morality enters into it. But he has a work ethic. And, for example, there's one book where a guy gets shot in the middle of a robbery. And they're in the middle of a gunfight in a room. And this poor guy is bleeding on the carpet. And Parker quickly decides, this guy's going to slow us down. So he chokes him to death while he's firing at all the other people so that they don't have to deal with this wounded man. He just axes him out of the equation because he's going to screw up the job. And then there are other books where associates of his get hurt. And he spends months of his life making sure that these guys are looked after and everything works out okay. So he tends to react to situations in very individual terms. And he obviously is making judgments. But it's very hard to pin down where these judgments are coming from. Right. It's for the moment. What works at that time. Pretty much. Yeah. It was a very interesting project. There's a number of things quite interesting. First, you're taking Westlake's works and you're putting them right in the book. You're doing some experimentation, I guess, in the process. You were drawing on boards half. You're doing two pages per board. You've got some tones. You've broken some panels. There's very few panels. So what kind of, was there a real learning curve here? Was there a number of things you had to break out of? Or was this just kind of your next step? It was like coming back to something. I don't know how many of you have seen it, but I did a book earlier this century called Selena's Big Score, which was a Catwoman heist story. And that's very much was my homage to Richard Stark's work. I even called the bad guy Stark, and he looked like Lee Marvin. That book, if you look at it compared to, say, New Frontier, it's much rougher looking. The work has a much looser, darker feeling to it. And I knew that's where I wanted to go with my work. But you simply cannot draw mainstream superheroes that way and expect them to pay for it or expect the readers to accept it. So by the time I got to New Frontier, I had found a way to really sort of tighten up my draftsmanship and clean it up to the point where it worked for a superhero story. So it was a real relief to get back to this book and be able to go get back to just like, it was almost like the day after Selena's Big Score, and now I could take it to the next level. And the thing about a project like this is there simply isn't the same amount of money up front on a project like this. So they can only afford to pay me, say, half of what I would make on a DC book. So I had to find a way to make sure I could execute the book in a faster fashion. And because we were working at the size we were, I was able to do slightly smaller pages, which allowed me to fit two on a board. And then I could psychologically tell myself it was just one page. And the other thing was just taking my cue from the material and from the man's name. I mean, he made up a pseudonym, Stark, to reflect the writing that he had done, which is stripped down. You know, he never says it was a wing-back chair with a brocade tapestry upholstery. He says it was a chair. His work is so stripped down, I wanted my artwork to reflect that. And I call it the live-off-the-floor approach. 
I, I didn't use any whiteout. I didn't go back and correct anything. Every mistake I made, I had to find a way to work around it right on the page. I did all the lettering on the boards and then actually applied the color to the boards as well so that we wouldn't have to go through the time-consuming process of computer lettering and adding tints in Photoshop. So it was very much like, I, I liken it to a, a four-track uh, studio where a band goes in and they just play the song and that's it, you, you know, no bells and whistles and uh, you avoid all that, the studio production value, et, et cetera. Okay. Um. And so, and so when you're applying the tones, were you, um, were you using markers? I mean, there's clearly this kind of blue in there. No, it's just a, it's a watercolor ink I used and a brush. And I'm just going over top of the black artwork and just uh, lay the blue on it. Yeah, okay. Um, and so, and so, were you, were you kind of, you're, you're, you moved on from Selena. Was there, did you tap into any of the animation where you really, in an, you know, the animation school, you kind of stripped down? Right, um, because there were certain things in there, are very interesting, and in, hopefully you all read it because it's fantastic. I don't think we see Parker. What is it? Eight, nine, ten pages in? We don't. He he's kind of where? It's quite a while. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> page eleven or twelve. Again, uh, I, I consider this man one of the greatest uh, writers North America has ever produced, and the first chapter of The Hunter was. He's a breathtaking piece of work. It's just an incredible piece of prose. And when I sat down to actually have to execute the first chapter, I thought, "This, what am I going to do? Just put all these words in?" It's because it, he doesn't say a, a thing. He, well, he says, "Go to hell," in the first sentence of the book, and then he doesn't say a word uh, for the next thirty pages. So, how am I going to do this? Just put all this narrative on here and, and a few drawings. I. I really put my balls on the table, basically, and thought, you know what, I'm going to do it without any words. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to capture as best I can every sentence uh, that he's written in this first chapter visually, and and try to put every bit of it across uh, my own way, but make sure that it's it's telling everybody the exact same thing that the book is. And as I did that, I it, I became aware of the fact that. People's reaction to the guy is maybe more important than seeing him at first, and it, it's building intrigue. You know, we see we see a woman on a on a bridge kind of get a little hot when she sees him. We see a woman on the subway who can't stand the smell of him because he, he's right up in her face riding on the on the subway. We see we see a situation with a waitress. So so we get these all these different reactions. Uh, from people before we actually see them, and uh, you know the idea is hopefully you know that it, that that's going to pay off. Uh, I don't know if it did, but I hope it did. Yeah, no, I, well, I think it did. But um, there's, I mean, there's a, there's a number of excellent, really interesting panels in the book um, that stand out. There's a couple for me uh, in the car, the mob. He's got his hands. He says, "You didn't bring any weapons." Um, and you kind of you're behind Parker again. He's, he shows his hands. Yeah, two of them. The is, is it what is he spoilers that talk about his wife? But when he's having a dream, have we all read the book? Because no. <laughs> <laughs> there's a fantastic dream sequence. Um, was there any particular any particular execution, any particular uh, panel or, or sequence that you really enjoyed? There, there, there's a great map. Oh, the map was fun. Sure, I, I enjoyed all of it. Um, there was very little of it that was hard to do, in the sense that I wasn't excited about it. And to me, that's what—that's when it's hard. If you're not excited about it, then it's hard because it's all hard work. Uh, being a cartoonist is a lonely, labor-intensive uh, way to make a living. You spend, you know, if if you're actually trying to make a living at it, you you have to spend 12, 16 hours a day uh, when you're working. Uh, and you're, in, you're, you're all cut off, you're all on your own. Um, so, you know what? I just walked myself out to the edge of a cliff. What the hell were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you love the whole bloody book. Yeah, I guess there are scenes I'm, 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 I'm really happy with because 
there's really only two things I added to the story. One is the dream. Um, Parker is the kind of character that, as Westlake said, he said, it was an experiment to find out if I could write a character where we gave no indication of his emotional state. I didn't want there to be anything that would betray what he was actually thinking or feeling other than his physical action. So that's a pretty bottled up guy, and it, 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 it's hard to get certain parts of the story across when you're dealing with such a closed up character. And one of the worst scenes in the book, to me, one of the most horrifying is uh, his wife um, overdoses rather than deal with him being back in her life. Uh, she betrays him, and he's left for dead. And when, when he returns, she uh, overdoses on, on pills. And he basically goes into the room and sees what she's done and says, you know, you always were stupid. And he pulls one of her dresses out of the closet and dresses her and leaves her on the bed and goes out and watches TV until it's dark out. And then he just picks her up, walks her into Central Park, lays her down, strips her, and then cuts her face to ribbons. So no one will be able to recognize her and they won't run her photo in the papers and it won't tip, tip the, these other bad guys off that he's coming. And I thought, oh my God. And he takes his dead wife into the park, strips her naked and then cuts her face up. I can't draw that. And I, I couldn't. So I ended up showing, you see the knife moving in his hand in a series of panels. And I, I think you can put together what it is he's done. But in the book, it's describing why he's doing it. Because there's, there's a purpose. It's so that he can avoid detection and she won't be identified. But how could I get that across unless I used a bunch of narrative? And it occurred to me, he leaves her apartment three days later. So I have it be like, it's like a coincidence, the police have just found the body, and they're, they're pulling it out to put it in the ambulance, and there are two cops standing in the middle of the street, and the one has been sick from what he's seen, and, and the other cop says, don't worry about it, you know, it's, it's okay. It's a pretty horrible thing. And, and he said, why would somebody do that? And, and he's, the cop explains, oh, he probably cut her face up, so we won't put a picture in the paper, and we won't know who she is. And Parker's walking by them as they're talking. And the last thing the cop says is, what kind of a sick son of a bitch would do that to a woman? So I was really proud of finding a dialogue-driven way uh, to get across that content, but also give a couple more characters a chance to make an observation about it as he kind of impassively walks through the scene, like completely disregarding them. The other one is the dream. Uh, and again, as the series goes on, it gets even worse. You know even less and less about this man. Uh, this, this book is the only one that gives you any real emotional content or, or lets you know about the man he was before he becomes the man in this series of books. And at one point, when he's with his wife, the evening before she kills herself, um, he's going to wait with her for a guy who's coming at the end of the month to give her some money. So she says, you'll stay? And he says, I'll stay. And he walks into her bedroom, and she follows him in, and she says, you'll stay here? And he's in there just to rip the phone out of the wall. And he looks at her, and he says, no, for you, that tree is dead. And then it says, he, he goes out to the couch and lays down, and it, and it says, he lied to her. The tree wasn't dead. He was afraid of her. And it's the only spot in over 20 books that you're given that insight into the man. It's the only sentence in like 20 books that gives you uh, anything like that. It's the only time fear is even brought up in, in relation to him. So I created a, a dream. He's on the couch and he's sleeping and we read those words and then we see her silhouette coming, coming over top of him and then boom, he wakes up. And it's a small scene, but it's very important because we only get these little scraps of information about the man. So finding a way to make sure the reader really stopped to notice that, that line in that situation was, was important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, 
obviously, critically, the book's done very well. Sales, great. Going to second print. We're to assume that you're you're at least doing a second one. Oh yeah. Are you doing all four? As far as I'm concerned. <laughs> is that is that the project you're working on right now? Uh, not just yet. Okay. Um, I'll probably start the second book in November, and uh, it'll be out October 2010. And the wonderful thing about uh, the way we're doing this is because it's a it's a hardcover release as opposed to a series of comics. In the comic business, of course, there's a three month distribution um, schedule. Uh, the, the books are solicited and they're ordered, and then three months later they appear. So the comics retailer has to actually calculate his orders for issue two and issue three before he even knows how issue one sells. And that's usually why you'll see a drop off in the second and third issue. Even if it's a popular book, they don't know it's popular until the first one comes out and sells. So they're, they're hedging their bets on issues two and three. In this case, we're working on a book distribution schedule, which is a year long. And it's going to be, we're going to do far better on the second book because they've seen how the first book's performed before they have to order the second book and they've got a year to consider it. So I think we're going to see actually our sales increase as we move along. Um, so it's, it, that's kind of a great situation to be in because generally with comics, you know, it's and then you, you know you kind of level off somewhere. But here I think we've got the chance to go boom, boom, boom. So. And in that system, um, you bring you bring the first one back into print, and then in the third one you bring the second and first one, and you're you're moving moving the sales along. Soft cover. You know we're also talking about compilations. We're talking about. Um, I want to do a version this big, where they just blow the artwork up to twice the size I did it. You'll see every little wart, every little crappy line, every wiggly piece of type I did. But I think it would really complement, you know, the material to be able to see it that rough and raw at that kind of size. So, uh, yeah, we have a lot of plans, and you know, IDW is a very uh, wonderful company to be working with right now. Uh, they're small, but they're but they're growing, and and they're definitely making a lot of inroads, and. The, the bigger, the majors are, are sort of framed so solidly and they're so corporate that it can take two, three, well, New Frontier took four years just to get approved. Just to get the editors to sign off on the concept, it took four years. And at IDW, I can phone them up and say, wow, you know, I've got this idea. And at the end of the day, they're saying, okay, let's do it. So it's, it's an exciting place to work. And, uh, you know, they're just wide open to, to anything that sounds sensible. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, you know, they, they've just brought on board two fantastic guys in, uh, in, in Bob and Scott. That's right. They've got Bob Streck and Scott Dunbeard out there now. And, uh, yeah, it's an exciting time to be working with that company. I think they're in fourth spot now. I think they blew Dark Horse out of fourth position. Um, so, we're, yeah, we're doing well. And now I'm here like... I'm their literary <laughs> darling. Because they've got all the licensed material they do, and they've got all the art books they do. And I think this is the first book that's ever got them like onto the front page of the New York Times, and the front page of the LA Times. So uh, everybody's happy. Yeah, great. Um, we, can, we can move forward and find, like, is, is, that, is that your next project? Well, the next thing is Jonah Hex. I don't know. I, I've already done one. And that's a funny story. Uh, I didn't want to do it. I was really busy. And uh, the writers are very good friends of mine, Justin, uh, Gray, and Janine Pagliotti. So every time we're at a show, we've got out a few drinks. They're like, when are you going to do a hex? When are you going to do a hex? So the one night, I had a few drinks. And I said, look, I'll tell you what. Here's when I'll do Jonah Hex, OK? I want a story where Jonah Hex goes to Canada. I want Mounties in the story. And I said, I don't want those Hollywood Mounties. I want drunk, corrupt, grubby Mounties. I said, I want a scene where he fights wolves with a big knife. And I ran down this entire list of all this crazy stuff that I wanted to be in the book. 
I said, if you can do that, then I'll do it. And like two weeks later, they handed me a script that just <laughs> blew me away. They, they, they had incorporated all this stupid stuff I asked for and wrote a brilliant story on top of it. I don't know how many of you caught that book, but the end of that story was so... Oh, it's just its wonderful. I think it's one of the best text uh, stories they ever wrote. So after that, it was a little easier for them to convince me to do the uh, 50th issue which comes out in December. It's a double-sized book. And uh, again, another great story. Uh, this one's actually kind of a tearjerker, which is rare for a hex book. But uh, yeah, I'm working on that right now. Great, great. Well, I'm sure everyone, um, you, I mean, you've worked on a number of critically acclaimed projects, uh, The Spirit. I mean, we did Brahma's questions, but um, you know, New Frontier, um, the, the movie's been released for a while. Uh, it's fantastic. You were involved in that? Oh, yeah. I worked, I worked uh, pretty closely with the guys. It was, a, again, that was such a strange situation because I had worked for Bruce Tim for about three years uh, on Batman Adventures, Superman Adventures, and then Batman Beyond. And then I went off to make my own little comic career, and Bruce is like, oh, have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, five years later, it bounces back into his office you're doing a, a movie of Darwin's book. And Bruce, Bruce will readily admit he didn't want to do it. And he told me on the phone, he said, man, I don't want to, how are we going to adapt this in an hour? It, the story takes place all over the world. It's, it's, it's a period piece that spans 20 years. He said, where are we even going to find somebody who knows what a telephone looked like back then to draw it? He said, I don't even want to do this thing. And I understood exactly what he was saying, but it was getting done whether we liked it or not. So uh, we just really rolled up our sleeves. And we got lucky because all the guys I knew down in, in Hollywood, all the guys who worked on the shows, when they heard that we were doing it, they all jumped in. They all they all got involved. And uh, it was kind of like a reunion for us. So yeah, I, you know, I did most of the character design. I probably storyboarded about 10% of the film. And I did a rewrite on the script uh, towards the end to try to pull it together. They didn't even have Lois Lane in the movie. Yeah. Wonder Woman wasn't in the first draft. The only woman in the first draft of their script was Carol Ferris. And she's in one scene where Hal like slaps her on the ass <laughs> and sends her on, the, on her way. That was, that was the, the sum total of the female content in their screenplay. And I kind of lost my mind. And there was a contract I had to sign before this could officially go forward. And I just refused to sign it until the script was to my satisfaction. And they could never actually get it there. So then I, I said, you have to let me rewrite it. And they acquiesced. And I, I wrote Lois into the thing. And, and we sort of sharpened up a lot of the things that the director and I thought needed to be there. And it was funny because Warner Home Video and, and Warner's Animation, they had kind of signed off on the script, but when they got the rewrite, they said, yes, 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 this is exactly what it was supposed to be. Oh, gee whiz. And, you know, it's like, hey, guys, we could have been here eight months ago. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I was, I was quite involved. Well, well that, I didn't realize that, because it obviously explains what I was going to say. It's extremely faithful. Um, uh, we watched it again the other night. And uh, it's interesting you say that, that there's no women in there in the original rewrite because one of the most uh, striking things is absolutely when Superman or Wonder Woman are in uh, Vietnam. Yes. And she's bigger than him. And you know, man, I'll tell you, boy, <laughs> they hate that. DC Comics hate that. Warners hated that. Wonder Woman's supposed to have the body of a 14-year-old and the boobs of a, you know. Um, she's not supposed to, their, their whole approach, you know, to, to, to beauty is, is very limited. And it, it involves, you know, a lot of nonsense I don't go for. And again, when I had to sit down with these characters who have been around forever, um, I, I had to go, I tried to go all the way back, look at what was there in the very first two or three times these characters appeared, and it's like, okay, she's an Amazon, she's 
she's this, she's that. And I came up with this notion of her being bigger and more powerful than Superman. And yeah, they, they, they don't like that at all. <laughs> but the fans love it. I've, I, I've never had anybody come up to me and say, that, that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen, or that didn't make sense to me. Uh, I've had thousands of people come up to me, and you know, hundreds of them have told me that's my favorite scene, when she stands up. And so, you know, we really had to ignore what they were all saying and, and concentrate on the fact that everybody else understood it. And, you know, let's face it, women get a short end of the stick in superhero comics. You know, they're either in a refrigerator or, you know, they're a plot device, basically. And that's pretty sad to me. Uh, going back even to Catwoman, uh, when, when I was asked if I wanted to get involved in that, I said, on one condition, she has to be completely redesigned. And I have to know that the writer believes as well as I do that this is a book that should be aimed at women, not at teenage boys. And I said, if that's the approach we're going to take, then I'm, I'm happy to get involved, because this is a great character, and it gives us an opportunity to maybe, you know, build her back up and redeem her as a person and get and get girls reading comics again and, and excited about a character that they, they can relate to. So I've always felt that that this is an important thing, that that any sort of uh, you know thoughtful creator should be trying to consider. And Wonder Woman was just another extension of that. And you know we all love Superman, but come on, he's kind of boring, right? And it, it was kind of fun to, to like put her out ahead of him that way, you know? Uh, I know it made a lot of sense to me, at least. Yeah, well, that, yeah, this is a great point. You know, obviously Catwoman it was, um, was 360, 180, 180 from uh, Jim Belen's work that was going on in that title. And then you look at uh, what, you, what you did with Carol Ferris and Lois Lane, and even even Iris West all of in, 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 in that book. but. There were a, there's a few women in Spirit's life. Sure. Yeah, were the, yeah thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of make that book interesting. Uh, we came this close to spinning uh, Silk Satin down into her own series. She was uh, uh, the, the CIA operative we had in the Spirit, and she was so well received by everybody that they were actually talking about doing a miniseries with her as the star. And I'm happy to say that Silk is based on my wife, Marsha, who's uh, never at a loss for words. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there are a lot of wonderful women in that book. I mean, Will, Will wrote some of the best women in, in the history of comics, I think. And uh, it was kind of terrifying and fun, you know, at the same time to try to live up to, to, to what he, he, he sort of set forth. Well, it looked like you were having fun. I mean, there's a number of covers on that run that um, that's what covers should be, you know? Not, not, not a pinup. You, you, the can, um, the, Hallow the, 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 the mishmash, bugs, Halloween. Thing. There's just, even, but even the iconic ones, um, In the Rain, you know, a number of fantastic covers. And that all bled into the book where, you know. We just tried to mix it up the way Will did. You know, and, and, uh, the spirit was a wonderful strip because one week you'd get this incredible espionage thriller. And then the next week, he'd uh, do a fake children's book where it all it all happened in one syllable words that rhymed. And then the next one would be a psychodrama, and then the next one would be a full-blown comedy um, or romantic farce. So it was a wonderful book in that regard because every month it was like I tried to hit a different note in 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 what will it achieve. And uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun with it. Great. Now I was thinking. Okay. Probably open it up to questions. Um, sure. I don't know. I don't know how the how we'll be able to hear up here. Maybe if you wanna, oh, if it doesn't work, then come up and use this microphone. They're usually not. But I'm, I'm gonna throw one more out there. When are you gonna work on Wednesday Comics? Is it gonna know. happen? It almost happened in the first one. It just it it, it didn't. You know, it, it wasn't a good time for anybody. Um, and you know, you get into character availability and stuff. But I thought by passing on the first one, I'll be able to do whatever I want in the second one. <laughs> and the format, the format would be, you know, you could just play, you go crazy with it. Well, you know, Mark's a genius. He really is. Uh, Mark was my editor for many years, and 
think what he's done with Wednesday Comics has been great. So uh, hopefully, you know, the next time around, and uh, we'll see. Sure, sure. Yeah. I'm uh, just wondering if you think that the success of uh, New Frontier has, has had any effect on, like, the ability of artists like yourself to get mainstream work, like a, uh, like a classically trained artist to be given Superman or, or, or Spider-Man or Batman. Do you think it's any easier or do you think it's the same? I think it's worse, unfortunately. Um, there was this wonderful six months right around the turn of the century where it seemed like Marvel and DC opening doors to us. And, you know, you look back then, we had uh, myself, Javier Polito, Marcos Martin, Mike Allred, Jay Bone. We were all doing mainstream books for DC and, and Marvel. And it seemed like within a year, they shut, they shut us all out of it. And if anything, I think New Frontier has reinforced to them the fact that that type of work is for old stories. As a matter of fact, DC's more or less let me know they don't think my work's appropriate for their books. Um, they don't like the idea of my artwork on the mainstream titles because it'll give people the wrong idea. They'll think it's some sort of an old-timey thing. And so it's actually the reverse. It's a lot harder, it seems, for guys uh, to, to get uh, material like that through. Now, there are some brilliant guys who still manage it. And, you know, the guy that comes to mind right off the bat is Marcos Martin, who's uh, doing Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, and, and a bunch of work over at Marvel. He's brilliant and very much part of our school. He's one of the few guys that I think is, has managed to overcome that, that preconception about uh, the type, this type of work. But even me, no, it's a, it's a huge stigma for me now uh, in terms of the major companies. Yeah, well, that's, that's good. Um, you were mentioning before your involvement with the, um, the, the film of uh, New Frontier. Um, well, I'm sure it worked out really well, your involvement with it. So would you, um, would you be interested in perhaps going in the direction of Bruce, that Bruce Tim did in working on, say, the animated series and stuff like that, if you feel like that's the correct transition? Uh, you know, I love animation almost as much as I love comics. Not quite as much. Uh, there, there are too many idiots involved. <laughs> and, and by idiots, I mean, yeah, the, the nephew of some guy who runs a studio um, is given the job of reading your script and, and telling you what's wrong with it. I mean, there, there are so many of those idiots in that business um, that it can be very frustrating. And so only the, only the most perfect circumstances would bring me back in, and, and that involves the people, not the crew, because that's easy to find the right guys for the crew. It's finding the right idiots <laughs> to work with. Um, and now these, these gentlemen aren't necessarily idiots, but I, I'll let you all know, we came within about two inches of doing an animated spirit film that I was going to produce, and it was going to go direct to DVD uh, to coincide with the live action release. But after several meetings and uh, being made, you know, uh, once I saw where they were going, I ran as far away from it as I could. Uh, you can destroy your reputation with one bad job in this business. Just ask Frank Miller. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful that I had the judgment to step away from it. Uh, because a guy like Will Eisner, if you're going to step up, and, and try to take that man's work and, and interpret it, then you know you better you better make sure you've got everything lined up in your favor because if you fail, then you know you failed you failed the industry. You you failed uh, you know on a lot of levels. It's not just OG. It's it's a mediocre film. It's it's a lot more than that. So I would love to do more animation, but it would really depend on on everything being just so. Uh, earlier today in the DC panel, um, there was questions about Wonder Woman, and uh, 
it kind of degraded into snickering about like booby jokes and stuff like that. Which is yeah, about and, right. yeah, and then in uh, the Marvel panel, it's almost the same thing. A woman asked uh, for suggestions about strong female leads, and they didn't really have any answers for. It. So, the opinions that you've expressed about women characters is like completely opposite of theirs. Like, what what are those guys missing, and what do we have to tell them as fans to kind of get them to smarten up? <laughs> Get more writers like Yale Simone. It's not a bad idea, is it? I mean, that's that's half the problem right there. Uh, these offices have been so wildly imbalanced for so long. Uh, they're kind of boys' clubs. And look, men are idiots. Let's face it. You put five of us in a room, and within two <laughs> minutes, the booty jokes have started. Um, what would change that? Honest to goodness, I, I don't know. I, and I'll, I'll tell you, I look at things like, uh, say, the infinite crisis and what happened there. And the fact that there's nobody overseeing a story like that and saying, hey, you know what, this is not, this is not the way to go. Uh, you know, do we, how many, how many children do we have in the room here? Because sadly, we're talking about superhero comic and it's it's the themes are so adult. It's like I got to make sure that I'm not freaking out a bunch of kids. But yeah, uh, you know, anal rape is not. I don't know what to say about it. I mean, it. I, I get apoplectic when I look at look at those types of situations. And the, the fact of the matter is, the thing sold like crazy. So there's nothing going on to tell them that they're making a mistake or a wrong step. And I think it would take an, an enormous reaction from the fan base. And I don't mean on the internet, because they don't care what you say on the internet. Believe me, you can type till you're blue in the face. They do not care. What they care about is whether it's sold or not. So the only way that you can direct them is, is you know, like they say, you vote with your wallet. So if there are titles that, that you know, you, you feel that way about, don't purchase them, and and try to talk to other people about it too. And there's nothing personal about that. But yeah, boycotting a book that you're angry about or that that you think is is going in the wrong direction, that's the only thing that's going to make them stop and think about it. You know, things are changing. I think slowly, um, and there's a lot of good work being done in that regard. But but there still is a, very much a boys' club sensibility. Uh, and yeah, I wouldn't know how to defeat it. I know all I can do is sort of um, manage my little piece of turf. Whatever little piece of turf I'm given, I, I'm very careful about it. And you know, you hope that other other guys will look at that and go, hey, wait a minute, yeah, you know, I can go that way with it. You know, I don't have to use his girlfriend as a plot device. I could make her a fully realized character. I mean. How stupid is it, this notion that Iris West wouldn't know Barry Allen's The Flash? What is she, retarded? <laughs> like, if your husband had a secret identity, how long did you figure it would be before you figured it out? And uh, that's why that scene in New Frontier exists. You know, like Barry's getting up the nerve to tell her he's The Flash, and she says, what, do you think I'm stupid? Of course you're The Flash. You, you hide this thing in, in, in the drawer under your socks. <laughs> you know? Um, so... I don't know what can be done. All I know, you know, I just try to do my best and, and, and hope everybody else is. Uh, you've thought of a Canadian element since sprinkled three stories and they the, the train job is uh, uh, big scores in Canada. Is there a great Canadian crime story from Darwin Cook coming sometime? <laughs> I know there's a great Canadian story. I don't know if it's a crime story, but I do have three or four threads of something um, that I'm waiting to gel. Uh, I have a little more reading to do because it's it's based on, on real history and things. Um, but I do hope one day to do something, you know, what I call my definitively Canadian book. Um, so, you know, hopefully. But I don't think I'm good enough yet. You know? Uh, I think that's something I'm, I'm not I'm not there yet. It's going to be a while before I'm ready uh, to tackle that. Yes? Uh, I was, the way you're discussing about how 
restricted you are, a lot of people don't know this, but to me, I'm scared, because this is going back to the 50s, basically, where they had the comic book world, and things, as I said, and I just, I know incidents, I don't know if anybody's encountered this, but you're reading a book, something like this, your spirit, that, you know, people are saying, what are you reading that for? And it's just, don't look over my shoulder. You know, that's what I'm saying. If you don't like it, screw sheep or wear sunglasses. I have every right. Now, what is it that they're wondering about? Why you're reading a comic, or why you're reading that comic? This one, I've had it happen a few times. You know, with this one. So, I might get a life. And adults, this is the one thing, too, with the way the situation is. Right now, I can say, things are hard, they're tight. People are going through sheer hell and crap. This is an escape. I think, I think everybody appreciates that. I just think there is always been a stigma regarding material. I don't think it's ever been better than it is now. But there are still people that are going to look at it that way. And it is, it's entertainment. And it is an escape. And I know it is for me. I know it is for all of us. You know, and it's probably something that we got the bug for when we were young. Some people just didn't. You know, and I don't know what to say about that. But I do know that nowadays I do a lot of traveling. I'm into the States a lot for shows or to go, you know, discuss a project. And the customs people are always so intrigued when they say, well, what do you do? And I say, well, I work in comic books. And they go, really, what do you do? And I say, well, I write and draw comic books. And they go, really, what is it you draw? And I'll say, you know, Batman and Spider-Man. And they go, oh, wow, that's neat, Stan. Go ahead. So they have that awareness. And they actually think it's kind of cool. But people still don't actually read the books. But there's an awareness of the culture now. That, that never used to be there. So I, I think it's better, but I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, um, it's sort of tied into what, what was being said before. Uh, do you see yourself becoming like more alternative as time goes on? Like 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 a lot of people, especially like Canadian people, like the drawn in quarterly group and stuff, right. read very, very quote unquote alternative stuff, and do you see yourself going more of that goes on, or more back to, you know, well, I'll let you all in on my deep, dark secret, because I get asked that a lot. You know, when am I going to do my poignant, you know, retelling of my troubled childhood? <laughs> when am I going to talk about the time my Uncle Timmy touched me there? <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, that's not me. I'm an entertainer. That's the way I look at it. I, I enjoy telling stories. I enjoy genre fiction. And while I'm not dis discounting the fact that I might end up doing, you know, more alternative work, and I, I believe I will, to me it's always whether the reader is being entertained or the reader's getting something out of it. I, I don't feel the need to, like, spill my guts on the page that way. Um, and I, I certainly am happy there are other guys who do, because some of the greatest books out there come out of that, that approach. But I just don't think it's me. I always say, hey, come on, man, I'm not Adrian Tomine, you know, I'm Michael Bay, I'm the shoot-em-up guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, the format for The Hunter, you chose more of a traditional novel style compared to a graphic novel shape. Was that right. a conscious choice of being, or was that the art just looked the best that way? No, it was a very conscious choice aimed at, you see, and again, I, I try very hard to make sure that what I do is going to be successful. And not just on an artistic level, like for myself. Oh, gee, the book is printed and it's what I wanted it to be. So I took a good long look at making this move out of the mainstream and what was the best way to do it. And I thought, you know, to, to adapt a piece of literature that I love will, will give me my fan base plus the fan base of the author. And the minute we were in that situation where we were dealing with such a, a, a highly regarded and popular author, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but the direct market is the direct market, and they are going to buy 
what they buy of my work. It really doesn't move, you know? And I said this in an interview on the Internet. Like, Bob Wayne can sit down and crunch the numbers, and he knows exactly what they're going to order on a book of mine before I've completed the book. He can take the character, the creator, the format, and the price point, crunch it all, and he comes within 500 copies of what gets ordered every time. So the direct market's the direct market no matter what. And the idea was, how do we grow the market? How do we get more people reading this material? How do we encourage other people to try it out, disguise the book as a novel? And, uh, I, you know, I, I said this over and over as we were doing it. I want the kid at Chapters to cut the box open and go, oh, crime fiction, and put it with the crime books as opposed to put it in the graphic novel section. Because my fans, my readers, will find it no matter what section you stick it in. But it's whether we've got Wesley's readers aware that it's there. So the whole book was designed... Uh, to, to try to bring those people in. Hi, um, I just based on that comment, um, I actually work at Chapters, and I'm really and I'm really really proud to see a whole bunch of people move towards the graphic novel section. And I'm also really really proud to say that we've introduced a new section, literary graphic novels. Yeah, I, I understand. That's very exciting. Yeah, and and just to see, like, and as you said before. Um, the, we haven't had it as good as we do now, and that's so true because even if the attention is being pulled away from a single issue, there's a great love of graphic novels that's being discovered by everyone. The single issue format is, is dying. There's, you know, they, la, 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 <laughs> you know, but how many more price hikes can you give a 22-page comic that gives you, like, three minutes worth of reading? Not, not many more, I would imagine. The numbers go down all the time. And despite what you read on Newsarama, because if you read Newsarama, everything's rosy. Oh, this was the biggest seller this month. Yeah, but what were the numbers? You know, in 1972 or 73, they canceled Jimmy Olsen comics. Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. No, they canceled it because it sold only 200,000 copies a month. Jimmy Olsen Comics sold 200,000 copies a month back then, and it wasn't enough to keep it alive. That was the cutoff, number-wise. And at this point, if a book sells over 10,000 copies, it's considered viable and is safe from cancellation. So that's a huge difference. And I, I don't think we're going to see a change. I think it's going to continue. But on the other hand, the market's still there. I don't know about you guys, but I can't keep it straight. Like if I read a comic book, and then say the artist can't get his shit together, so it's like eight weeks before the next one comes out. I can't remember what happened. I'm, I'm an old man. It's a comic book I read two months ago. I can't even remember what, what went on. So even the stuff that does come out that way, I, I read it in trades because I want to be able to sit down for an hour, read a story, and become engaged and you know from beginning to end and, and then be able to walk away with the memory of it. So uh, you know, to me though, even that secondary, you know, I think the real the real arena is electronic. You know, I don't think it's even going to be five years. I think within two or three years you are going to see almost everything that we love is going to be rolling out electronically first. And the stuff that spins, the stuff that people are really, really hot for, that's the stuff that's going to get collected and printed. But, uh, and I encourage it. I think it's a great thing. Uh, I, again, in another interview last week, I, I said, riddle me this, you know, how do you sell a hundred, uh, excuse me, a million Spider-Man comics a month? For 25 cents a pop on iTunes, that's how you do it. But they don't want to do that because they're very comfortable in that direct market where they know within 500 copies what everything's going to sell. The idea of stepping out into the world that way disrupts the entire culture, the corporate culture, and, and 
and system within which they create their work. They don't even know what, what to pay us yet for the electronic stuff. They're, they're still dogfighting about royalties and, and all that kind of thing. Um, but honestly, that, that's how you do it. it it's that simple. And, and it's like, it's sitting right in front of us. But, but uh, the only people taking the initiative are the smaller companies. And I, I think Kindle or wherever we net out is, is where we're going to see all the new and exciting work. And I think if we ever see another character break out, like, like a Batman or a Spider-Man or the X-Men, it's going to be there. It's going to be a young person who's going to do it there. And it's going to turn on a huge audience. And, and that's, that's the next step, definitely. I mean, it, it has to be. Like, am I wrong? No. Whether we like it or not, I mean, I prefer like print, yeah. but you know, I think we got to see it for what it is here. Well, at least we ended up on, a, on an up note. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is a future. There is a future. Well, yeah. Well, thanks, thanks, thanks for joining us. Well, that was awesome.